Hey, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to the church. Welcome to worship. Everybody who's here and everybody who's online. Uh, like Pastor Gary said, my name is Greg. Uh, I get to bring the word this morning. And if you are new, if, if this is your first time here or watching, I just want to welcome you and just uh, thank you. Thank you for joining us. We are in this series called What We Believe. We've been looking at what it is we believe as Christians. What do we believe by faith? And I want to start off by asking if any of you have ever watched the show called Undercover Boss. Undercover Boss. Yeah, a lot of people have watched it for 11 seasons. It's been going strong, and I believe like for four years it, w- it was winning Emmys year after year. There's something intriguing about the, the top executives, the owner of businesses, disguising themselves for about a week as entry-level employees, as interns. And so they go into different areas of the company to meet some of the people working for them. And along the way, they're learning about how the business runs and different challenges and predicaments that these employees face. And then after about a week, they go back to their positions, but they learn a lot during that time. Just something intriguing about that. But I'm, I'm more interested in the real deal. I think about CEOs like the former CEO of Japan Airlines, Mr. Nishimatsu. This is Haruka Nishimatsu. And uh, let me show you a better picture of him. Here's a little bit better picture of him. See, because he's not your typical boss. Though his airline company was the leading Asian airline company in terms of revenue, he was doing things normal CEOs don't do. He was known for taking a bus to work like every other employee when he could have easily had a driver chauffeur him in one of many cars, he took the bus. He would go and stand in line at the company cafeteria. He would wait like everybody else would. He wouldn't cut to the front, but he would wait in line. He would pay for his own lunches, and he would sit, and anybody from the company, even if you're a minimum wage worker, can come up to him, ask him anything and everything. In 2006, when the company took some hits financially, he decided the first thing he was going to do was he's going to cut back and cut out all his perks, his corporate perks as a CEO. And he's going to drop down his salary to $90,000. That was less than what his own pilots were making. So he wasn't the highest paid, though he was highest in position. There's something about the guy in the highest position coming down to everyone else's level. Not for a week, not for publicity, not for a TV show, not for worldly profit, but to simply identify and to be with the people. As we continue on in this series, What We Believe, I'm titling today's message, What If God Was One of Us? What if God was one of us? And we're going to be talking about the humanity of Christ today. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the Trinity, and we talked about how Jesus is 100% God, 100% fully divine. We looked at the scriptures that show us that that is indeed the case. And today, we're going to look at how the Bible also says that Jesus is also 100% human. Theologians have a fancy word for it. They call it the hypostatic union. And all that says is that Jesus was fully God, fully man. Not half God, half man, 100% God, 100% man. And maybe you don't need convincing of that. Maybe you know that Jesus was a man. And yet sometimes internally we, we have this question of, but how Man was he? Like how human was he? 
Like, did he really struggle? Did he really know what temptation was like? Did he really suffer here on this earth? And if so, why is that meaningful to us? And so today what I want to do is I want to answer two questions. How do we know Jesus was truly human? And secondly, if he was truly human, how is that truly meaningful to us? All right, so I want to pray, and then I'm going to invite you to open up the scriptures, and let's see what the word says, okay? So let's come before the Lord, and let's ask him to teach us now. Lord, we just take this pause because we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, God. We want you to go before us. And Lord, would you be the one to lead us into your word? I pray that you, being our good shepherd, would be our leader, and that you would lead us into truth, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that right now you would take this understanding that maybe many of us have believed for years, or maybe this is our first time hearing this, but, Lord, I pray that you would show us the beauty and the wonder, wonder and the significance of the fact that Jesus was 100% man. God, take us deeper into your truth, Lord, in such a way that it changes our lives. And I pray that everyone listening right now, from wherever we are, Lord, by the end of this, Lord, we would be more in love with you, more in awe of you. And, Lord, I know I cannot do that. <laughs> I really know I can't do that. But, Lord, you can. And so we ask your Holy Spirit to come. Would you speak to us now? We give you our hearts and our minds, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 The Son of God was always in the form of God. He was always in the form of God, but he wasn't always in the form of man. It's not like the Son of God was a human in the flesh walking around in heaven just waiting for the call from the Father to go and touch down on earth. No, Jesus was fully God, but only when he was born on earth did he take on humanity. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Flip to Philippians chapter 2, and in this context, Paul is telling the people, he's teaching the people to be humble, to put others before yourselves, and he uses Christ as their example. And here's what he says in verse 5 through 8. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so you look there in verse 6, it says he was in the form of God. The NIV will say, or other versions will say, in very nature he was God. And then in verse 7 it says, then he emptied himself. Now does that mean that he got rid of his godness, put aside being God so that he could become man? Not at all. He was still 100% divine, 100% God, but he emptied himself in a way as to not grasp his divine powers or his divine privilege, Right? So that being found in human form, he humbled himself. And then in verse 6, it says he didn't count equality with God, something to, to grasp or to cling to. Some other versions will say he didn't use that for his own advantage. It's kind of like this. My 11-year-old son and I, um, his name's Evan, and we've been playing a lot of basketball at the park near our house. 
and we, we have this running tally, wins and losses. And I told him, at the end of every week, if you have more wins than me, I'll buy you a pack of baseball cards. And so we play one-on-one. And some of you guys are thinking, well, that's not fair. You're a man. You're stronger, faster, taller. Well, first of all, thank you for that. I appreciate you acknowledging that. But, but, but I empty myself in order to make it fair. I empty myself of my abilities. And so here's the rule. I, I can't stop being taller, stronger, faster. I can't stop being a man. But what I told him was I'll only play with my left hand. That's my weak hand. I'll only dribble with my left hand, and I can only shoot with my left hand. And when, we, when you have the ball and I'm on defense, I'll, I'll put my hands behind my back, and I won't use any of my hands. So I can't block you, and I can't steal from you, but I can just put my body in front of you. Now, does that mean that I literally have to chop off my right hand so I don't have a right hand? Does it mean that when I'm on defense, I literally take off my arms? No, like I still have my right hand and that ability to use it. I still have my arms, but I'm choosing to limit myself. I'm limiting myself. Why? To come to his level, to be able to identify with him. And in the same way, Jesus empties himself, not that he puts off his godness, but he chooses not to use his divine powers and his divine privilege for his advantage. Why? So that he can identify with us, so that he can come down to us. And so Jesus, though he is in very nature God, in fact, on earth we see glimpses of his divine nature, right? When he calms the sea, when he knows what the Pharisees are thinking before they even say a word, when he knows the entire past of that Samaritan woman, we see his divine nature. But in a mind-blowingly meaningful way, we see that Jesus took on humanity. He limited himself. He took on weaknesses that we experience to identify with us. So let me just show you from the scriptures how we know that he truly was human. So the first thing is this. First of all, Jesus had a human body. So if you're taking notes, maybe you have your tablet open or your journals open, write this down. Jesus had a human body. When John chapter 1 says that the word became flesh, that means Jesus wasn't from eternity past before the foundations of the world. He wasn't in heaven walking around with human flesh and a human body waiting to touch down, but, but he had to become flesh. In other words, he had to be born like every one of us here had to be born. He had to be delivered into this world. And as a baby, like all of us, there were probably nights where he woke up crying and fussing. There were probably nights when, when he would wake up and spit milk all over Mary's garments because that's what babies do. Luke chapter 2, 52, like every infant, he had to grow up. It says this in 52, it says, And Jesus increased, he grew in wisdom and in stature. That's physical stature. And he grew in favor with God and men. And so we see evidence that Jesus grew physically, and we also see later that he grew physically weary. After a long journey, he's journeying and walking all over the place, doing ministry. And in John chapter 4, he gets so tired. It says this in verse 6. It says, Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied from his journey, as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. 
And so you imagine if you've been traveling all day and for days upon days, you get tired. And so I imagine that there's times when Jesus had to stretch. Like he had to stretch out. There's times when he probably started cramping in his calves. There were times when he lost his breath. Can you imagine that? And so Jesus, having a human body, grew physically weary. And there's times when he had to replenish that weary body. He got thirsty, so he needed a drink. That's why he was there at the well in John chapter 4. He needed a drink. There's times when he was desperate to eat after fasting 40 days. In Matthew chapter 4, he was starving. And so Jesus had a human body. Earlier this week, uh, I had a sore throat. I had a runny nose. I had a headache. And I came down with this little cold. And I was thinking about how is this going to affect the the message I have to give this weekend. And I was just thinking if I was going to be able to do it. And then I started thinking as I was preparing this. Man, Jesus, with all the preaching and all the ministry he did, uh, there's probably times when he had a sore throat, when he had runny nose, when he he had headache. Why? Because he had a human body subject to the same weaknesses and limitations that we experience. Stuff that the gospel writers probably didn't think they needed to write about, but we see glimpses of his limitations. Jesus had a human body. Then write this down. Jesus had a human mind. Just like us, right? That passage we read earlier in Luke chapter 252, it said not only did he grow in physical stature, but also he had to grow in understanding. Meaning that he didn't know everything as soon as he was born here on earth. So it's like when when Mary gives birth to this precious little baby and she's in that stable looking at him and saying, oh, you are my precious. It's not like Jesus is laying there and going, and you are Mary, You're a virgin, and that guy Joseph is not your husband, but he's my daddy, right? Like he's not talking to to Mary because he's not talking, and he's not thinking that stuff because as a baby, he has to learn how to think, learn how to talk, learn how to read, learn how to write just like every one of us. And that's hard to wrap our minds around because isn't he God? Isn't he omniscient, fully knowing? Absolutely, he's God. And yet, though he has access to all knowledge being God, he chose to limit himself and take on the human experience. Mark chapter 13 gives us another glimpse of this in verse 32 when it talks about when the Son of Man will come again. It says, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And so though Jesus has access to know all things because he is God, he chose not to know all things for the sake of man, that he should identify with us. So Jesus had a human body. He had a human mind. Finally, write this down. Jesus had a human heart, meaning he had emotions just like you and just like me. Right, a lot of times I think, you know, if you've seen the Jesus film from the past or you read these storybooks, we kind of see Jesus as this like wise sage who walks around stoic, monotone, waves be still, Lazarus rise, sit my children. Right, and we, we, we have this picture of Jesus and yet when we read the scriptures, he has the full range of emotions in the temple, they're, they're making prophets, personal prophets in the holy temple of his father. And he flips tables because he's indignant. This righteous outrage that you should defile a holy place. John chapter 11, his 
friend Lazarus dies. And he looks into the eyes of those who are mourning and he starts weeping. Tears coming out of his eyes. He's feeling the depth of the sorrow. I, I read a lot of scholars and commentaries who said Jesus probably was humorous. Like he made people roll. Like you look at his stories and he embellished stories. He hyperbole and irony and sarcasm. The way he spoke in the first century, people would hear him and they would crack up. It's crazy what you're saying, Jesus. We see in the garden when he's about to go to the cross, this deep anguish and this trouble in his heart. And in John chapter 12, it says that his soul was greatly in despair. And so Jesus, being fully God, we see that he was divine and that he could predict the future, fulfill prophecies, and, and produce miracles. But we also see that he was fully human. He took on a human body. He had a human mind, and he had a human heart, just like you and just like me. Now, why is that truly meaningful? And so for the rest of the time, I want to give you a couple reasons why this is truly meaningful to us, that Jesus became man. Number one is this. Would you write this down? Because it means he's sufficient as our sacrifice. It means he's sufficient to be our sacrifice. The Bible says that for the wages of sin is death. Gregory of Nazianzus, he was a 4th century church leader, and he was a theologian, and he wrote this. He says, that which Christ has not assumed, he has not healed. That which Christ did not assume, he did not heal. In other words, he took on a human body to save humans. See, in the Old Testament, God gave his people commandments. We call it the law, the Old Testament law or God's law. And in the law, he gave us ways how to live. Thou shalt not do this and thou shalt do this. And, and so he gave these laws and what did the people do? They did what thou shalt not do with. And what thou shalt do, they did not do. They kept breaking the law. And because they broke the law in God's law, the, God said there's a way to atone for your sin. There's a way to be forgiven. And so he set up the sacrificial system. And if you had sinned against God, what he said is you could take an animal. You could take like a goat or a lamb or doves, depending on who you were in society, and you would take a sacrificial animal. I asked my daughters, I said, hey, do you have a stuffed lamb I could borrow? And my youngest daughter brought me this. Apparently, she doesn't know the difference between a lamb and a llama. But I guess today this is the llama of God. And so, and so what you would do is you would bring it to the temple or the tabernacle. And at the altar, you would do a few things. And keep in mind that this sacrificial animal had to be perfect. No blemish, no sickness, no broken legs, no blindness. It had to be without blemish. And at the altar, among the many things you would do, that sinner who has guilt in him would lay your hand, you would lay your hand on the head of this animal. And this symbolized the transferring of your guilt off of you now onto the head of this animal. For the wages of sin is death. And at that moment, you would slaughter the animal and its blood would spill. And the Bible says why? Because life is in the blood. Any creature that doesn't have blood doesn't have life. And so this animal is now taking your place. And so you're, in that moment, atoned for your sin. You're forgiven. 
And so can you imagine after doing that, you, you go, oh, praise God. You walk in a place, you feel so fresh and so clean and I'm set free and you go about life. But what happens? Not before long, it's like, oh, I just lied to my wife. Oh, I got to go back and get another animal and, and slaughter it. And then you feel fresh and clean. You go out again and, oh, I just killed my neighbor. Oh, man, like I, I, I got to go back and, and make a sacrifice for that. And you would constantly go back day after day, year after year. And the reality is it will never be enough. Why? Well, the Bible tells us. So, go to Hebrews chapter 10. And Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be here quite a bit. It tells us this regarding the Old Testament law. In verse 1, it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. By the way, you know what a shadow is? It's temporary. It doesn't last, but it points to something that is substantial. It is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, it can't make perfect those who draw near. Why? Well, you go down to verse 4. It says this, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. God was saying this is only a temporary solution that God's providing until God provides the permanent solution. Who is going to be that solution and when is it coming? Well, look what Galatians chapter 4 says in verse 4 and 5. God says this. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. What that's saying is that only humans under the law can be saved by another human under the law. Only a human can redeem humans under the law. That means a llama can't die for you. A cow can't die for you. That means angels can't die for you. That means the Holy Spirit can't hang on the cross for you. A human life needs to be the substitute for another human's life. I'll never forget the first time I learned how to surf. And my roommate, James, in college, he, he really wanted to teach me because he was learning too. And the problem was I didn't have a surfboard. And so I go online trying to find a used surfboard. And they're like at least 100 bucks, even for an old beat-up surfboard. And I'm such a cheap guy. I'm like, I don't want to spend 100 bucks. And so I, I got to get a surfboard. And so I remember my friend in college, June, told me that that year for her birthday, her parents had just bought her a brand-new custom-made, hand-shaped surfboard from right here in Hermosa Beach. It cost them $600. And it kind of looked like this. And, and I went to June, being the chief guy that I am, and said, hey, June, I was wanting to learn how to surf. Can I borrow your board? And at the time, she had never even used it. You hadn't touched water. The plastic was still on it. And she goes, to my surprise, she goes, sure. You could be the first to use it. She goes, go ahead, break it in. Break it in, right? And so, so, so Saturday morning, like we 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 strapped the, car, the these boards to my friend's SUV, and I'm the one strapping them. And I've never strapped boards to a car before, but I, I had some bungee cords in my car, so I get bungee cords, and I strapped these two surfboards to my friend's SUV. And to make a long story short, there's a, there's some amazing details to the story, but long story short, we get onto the 405 freeway. What? What? <laughs> 
Man, so, so we're on the 405 freeway, and my friend is driving, and as soon as he hits about 60 miles per hour, we hear this weird sound, kind of like the sound of surfboards flying off of a car. <laughs> vroom, 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 vroom. And, and I look at my, my friend James driving. I'm like, James, I think our surfboards just flew off the car. He, he looks at me. He goes, no, they didn't. And he keeps driving. The guy's in total denial. I go, no, James, those were our surfboards. I'm sure he goes, no, it wasn't. And he keeps driving. And then I go, James, pull the car over. And finally, he pulls over to the side of the 405 freeway. I get out of the car. I run down the side of the freeway. And you know how Jesus had this incredible ability to take a piece of bread and feed thousands of people? I somehow took one surfboard and turned it into a thousand pieces all over the 405 freeway. Like, what in the world happened? And just like that, I owe my friend June a brand new $600 custom-made surfboard. I was so cheap to pay $100 for my own, and now I got to buy her a brand new surfboard. Now, being the cheap guy that I am, Let's say I come up with a solution. I say, June, don't worry about this. I got you. I got you, June. Here. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to replace that. Here you go. All right, June, check this out, right? I know I lost your surfboard, but here you go. Here you go. This is a brand new hand-shaped surfboard. It's never touched water. There you go, June. Is this going to satisfy her? Absolutely not, right? Why? Because this is a toy. This is a wall decoration. This is an office decor. No, she's going to require an actual surfboard to replace and substitute an actual surfboard. Like anything less is not going to satisfy. And in the same way, Jesus, being fully human, is the only one who can satisfy a righteous and holy God, a human life for a human life. No lamb, no goat, no bull. Literally, a human life has to be the substitute for a human life. Now, why can't I die for you? I got human life. Like, like if I could die for you and know that all of you would go to heaven, I would die for you. I think. <laughs> Don't hold me to that. But I, I think like what if, what if I were to be like, I'll do it. I'll do it for all these people. I'll build a cross and I'll hang myself on the cross. Why would that not be sufficient to help you go to heaven? Why not? Because... I'm sinful, just like you are sinful. I'm not as sinful, but <laughs> I sin too, right? So that's not going to satisfy. It's like this. You can't pay for a broken, sinful life with another broken, sinful life. That's why the Dalai Lama, Mother Teresa, Buddha, Muhammad, the Apostle Paul, John the Baptist, none of them can sufficiently die for any of us. Why? Because although they're held as good people, they're not perfect people. They've got blemishes. They've got sin. And so it's like me going like, okay, June, I'm sorry. This is, I'm just kidding. This is a joke. I got you, June. All right. You, you had an actual surfboard. I got an actual surfboard. And being the cheap guy I am, I take all the money I have, uh, 25 bucks from my wallet, and I go, here you go, June. 
There you go. It's a surfboard. Yeah, it's a little busted up. It's got duct tape all over it. It's got holes in the side and uh, it's a little yellow. It used to be white, but it's an actual surfboard. It floats. Is this going to satisfy her? Absolutely not. Why? Because you can't replace a broken surfboard with another busted up surfboard. She's only going to be satisfied with a perfectly new, mint condition, never touched water, surfboard in perfect condition to replace the thing that which was lost. Jesus Christ is not only human, but he is perfect in very nature. Here's what Hebrews chapter 10 says. Verse 11 through 14 says this. And every priest stands daily in his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. I I love that verse. Why? Because it says that the priest, the high priest who helps do these sacrifices, he stands daily. Why? Because he constantly is at work, constantly making sacrifices. Why? Because it can never deal with it sufficiently. But look at verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he sit? Because it was done. The work was done. Waiting from that time until his enemies become a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. God being in very nature, holy, righteous, and just, requires a perfect human sacrifice without blemish and without blame. Now, what human in this world can possibly be without sin? For only God is without sin. Jesus Christ, who took on humanity, and yet being in full nature God, was sinless and pure. Jesus became the lamb of God, the sacrifice in our place. And that means he is the only one who is sufficient to be our sacrifice. The humanity of Jesus means he is sufficient to be our sacrifice. Let me give you one more reason why this is absolutely meaningful to us. It means he sympathizes with our struggle. So Jesus taking on humanity means he's sufficient to be our sacrifice, but it also means that he can sympathize with our struggle. You see what I did there? There's a lot of S words, right? Sufficient, sacrifice, sympathizes with our struggle. I like S words. Let me give you one more S word. It's the word schadenfreude. Does anybody know the word schadenfreude? Not many people know this word, but a lot of people experience this. A lot of us in here have experienced it, but not many of us care to admit it. What is schadenfreude? Schadenfreude is the experience of joy that one feels at another person's misfortune. Have you ever felt that before? Like when you see the super successful person fail? Or when when you have these group of friends and two people who are like best friends are at odds with each other? When you see this couple who seems to have it all together, like they have the perfect marriage, and then one comes to you and shares with you their marital struggles. There's something that goes on inside of you where you feel this weird thing, and it's this feeling of, ah, nice. 
that kind of feels good. You wouldn't ever say it, but there's something in you that goes, cool. It's schadenfreude. Schadenfreude, sometimes that's born out of sin, right, from envy or rivalry, insecurity. But sometimes I don't think it's always all that malicious. Sometimes it's that feeling in us when we realize, man, this person is human, just like me. There's this feeling of relief and even comfort. And I can't recall any emails I've ever received where someone emailed me after a message and said, Pastor Greg, thank you so much. I love it when you preach about your successes and all the trophies you've won. I, I love it. Please keep patting yourself on the back and telling us how perfect your marriage is, how great your kids are, and how much you love your job. I've never gotten an email like that. I have no evidence to show you. I can show you a couple emails that I've saved where after an email someone has said, thank you so much for being vulnerable. Thank you for that moment of transparency in this past weekend's message. I remember one, one message where I was sharing about just the marital, marital difficulties Monica and I were having early on in our marriage. How it was rough. And I talked about how it was so bad that I wanted to walk away from ministry. Because I felt like I was unfit to be a leader, even in my own home. And it was so bad that both of us were thinking about walking away from the marriage. And how by God's grace, he was restoring us and sanctifying us. I remember after that message, I was in the lobby. met this guy for the first time. Never met him before. Tall, like six foot something tall. Big guy. Has his leather jacket on. Has his motorcycle helmet. And he comes up to me. He says, can I hug you? And I'm like, uh, sure. Bring it in, right? And I'm like, I've never met this guy. We're hugging. And he looks at me in the eye and he says, thank you for letting us see you for who you are. There's something refreshing when somebody shows their humanity. It's that feeling of, man, I, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one who struggles. But there's something refreshing when we can share in a similar experience. When you find out that somebody who seems to have it all together is human after all. It brings that seemingly perfect person who always seems to be up here. It's like it brings them down to earth. And it makes them relatable and approachable. There is something amazingly refreshing about God's humanity. That though Jesus is perfect and he is all perfect way up here, that he should come down to earth. And that makes him down to earth. It makes them relatable. It makes him approachable. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We go back to the book of Hebrews. And in verse 15 it says this. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. That part that says yet without sin, that's what makes him sufficient to be our sacrifice. But the part right before that that says in every respect he's been tempted as we are, that makes him able to sympathize with our struggles. In every respect, in every respect, he has faced the same temptations of the flesh that we have. And then that question comes up, well, does he really struggle? I mean, he's God. 
Does he really know what temptation is like? He's perfectly righteous. Does he really struggle like we struggle? Well, let me try to give you perspective. Think about it like this. And I was thinking about sin, right? And I, I truly believe at the core, at the root of every sin, when you dig down deep, what's at the core of it? I believe it's an exaltation of self, right? It's when, when I want to put myself above God and above others because somehow I'm gaining from this, that's what gives birth to sin. Anger, lust, hatred, envy is all born out of an exaltation of self. Now, if that's true, then have you ever considered the intensity of the temptations that Jesus must have experienced being that he is fully man but also fully God? Having to, to, to take on these limitations, though he is fully divine in nature and he has access to all his divine powers and all his divine privileges, that temptation must have been intense. When, when Satan tried to command Jesus after Jesus was fasting for 40 days, hungry in the desert, and he says, go ahead, turn those stones into bread. Deal with your hunger. Jesus could have flexed his divine power, and in response, listening to Satan, he could have turned those stones into bread. Thank God he didn't give in to his temptation. Jesus could have flexed his righteousness like all the Pharisees who were exalting themselves, showing off their spirituality, but instead of exalting himself, he humbled himself to serve his disciples. Thank God he didn't give in to his temptation. With the swipe of his hands, he could have avoided the cup of God's wrath that he was dreading to drink. But thank God he resisted his temptation. With the snap of a finger, with the clap of a hand, the angels, legions of angels could have come to rescue him from the Romans who were trying to crucify him on the cross. Thank God he resisted the temptation. Jesus, being fully God in very nature, had the ability to access divine powers and divine privileges. How intense was that temptation all throughout his earthly life? And yet... He didn't. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to cling to, to use to his advantage. Why? For your sake, for my sake, that he should identify with us. So this past week, I'm playing one-on-one -on -one with my son Evan, right? So we're playing this game, and remember the rule is I got to limit myself, so I got to only play with my left hand and shoot with my left. And there's this one play where the rebound went to the right side. I got it really quick, and I put it back up, and I scored. And immediately he goes, cheater! You cheated? That's your right hand? I said, no, was it? It was my left. He's like, no, that was your right hand. I said, no, it went to the right side, but I shot it with both hands. It wasn't my right. And we go back and forth. Big man, little 11-year-old kid, we're arguing on the courts. He's like, you're cheating. I'm like, no. Now between you and me, it was my right hand. It was my, it was my right hand. Don't tell him. But it was so easy because it was right there. This is my stronger hand. It's more sure. It's like right here. It's so easy to just use it. And yet Jesus, having access to his divine powers and his privilege, is right there. His mighty right hand is right there. How intense that temptation, yet he fought the toughest temptations to exalt himself 
in order that he should humble himself and identify with us in our weakness and our limitations. I want to close with this thought. You know who the best counselors, who the best helpers on earth are? It's the ones who have gone through what you're going through. Those will always be the best counselors. Why? You know, I thank God so much that the divorce care ministry in this church isn't led by a bunch of people who have only known perfect marriages. They're led by people who have gone through the trauma and the pain and the tears of divorce. I thank God that my my friend who's a therapist who specializes in betrayal, abandonment betrayal, is one who has experienced betrayal when his spouse walked out on him. I thank God that my friend who struggled with alcoholism went through the 12-step program to celebrate recovery, and he's being sponsored by somebody who knows the poison of alcohol addiction. Why is it that the best counselors and best helpers on earth are those who have gone through it like you have? Why? Because you know that when you come to them with your struggle and your sin or your suffering, that there's not going to be any condemnation. They're not going to jeer at you in judgment. They're not going to curse you in condemnation. They're not going to shake their head in shame. But you know that there's going to be a real understanding, a real empathy, real compassionate grace, that when you come to them with your struggles, that they're going to get down with you. They're going to look you in the eye and say, I get you. Like, I really get you. And I know how hard you're fighting. I really do. I've been there. And they're going to put their arm around you and say, I I want to see you through this. I want to help you. I really do. We have a God who is full of amazing grace. And we sing about his amazing grace all the time. And yet sometimes we see God as a God who's way out there, full of attributes, grace being one of them. And sometimes it can be so far removed But we need to stop and realize that his grace, Jesus who is full of grace, offers a grace that is so much more tangible and relatable and approachable than we realize. That when you come to Christ with your struggles and your sin and your suffering and you come, realize you have a God who's willing to come down here. He's down to earth. And he wants to look you in the eye. And say, I get you. I really get you. There's no shame, no judgment, no condemnation here. I love you. I I really love you. And I know how hard you're fighting. I know how hard you're struggling. But let's do this. We're going to get through this. I get you. I'm going to close with Hebrews chapter 4 one more time. Verse 15. It says this. We have a high priest, an empathetic counselor. And it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So what? So what does that mean for us? It means this. Let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God came down, and that makes him down to earth, relatable, approachable. Jesus' humanity means 
that he is sufficient to be our sacrifice, the sacrifice for our sins, and though we still struggle with sin, he can sympathize with our struggle. To God be glory, honor, and praise. Amen? Amen. Would you guys bow your heads with me? God, it's just overwhelming when we think about the extent and the distance that you went for us. That God should come down to earth and become man. That Christ should get down with us and look us in the eye and remind us that he is everything we need. He's sufficient to cover our sins and to be that perfect sacrifice. And though we still struggle, Lord, you sympathize with our struggle. You get it. And so we know there's no condemnation. When we have unbreakable patterns, when we do the thing we said we would never do again, God, thank you so much for understanding us and for going through what we went through to know that you're not just speaking from way up there, but, Lord, you came to experience what we experience. God, that gives us hope. So help us to keep getting back up. Help us to keep on fighting by your strength and by your grace and help us to enjoy the grace and the mercy that's available to us, Lord. We come before your throne with confidence, God. And so, Lord, we respond right now. Lord, lead us to your cross. Remind us of your grace. Remind us of what you've done for us. And it's the very reason we sing in worship. We want to do that now in Jesus' name. Amen.